Turn in your Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you're joining us today for the first time, welcome. We're glad you're here. We typically here at Indian Creek uh, work our way paragraph by paragraph through a book of the Bible week after week, and we have been working through over the last several months 1 Corinthians. We find ourselves in chapter 11 at the beginning of the fourth of five major sections in this letter. And uh, this major section deals primarily with the gathered worship of the church of Jesus Christ, and it begins and ends with the subject of gender roles in gathered worship. So that's where we find ourselves today, and uh, we'll pick it up here in verse 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, follow along as I read. Paul says, Now I commend you. Because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him, but if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Would you join me now in prayer? Father, in this moment, gathered as your people around your word, in the presence of the holy angels and the spirits of the righteous made perfect, we acknowledge that this is your church and that you operate it, you run it, however you want to do so. It's not our church. It's not our possession. It wasn't purchased with our blood. It was purchased with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Father, as we work our way through a passage that challenges our assumptions as modern Western people, I just ask that 
you would submit our hearts humbly before you. And that whatever the Holy Spirit says to do, that you would give us the ability to obey. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's become something of a pastime for our family to watch these nature documentaries on Netflix. They're amazing. How many of you enjoy these types of shows that show the blue whale or the, you know, the jellyfish or whatever it is? We enjoy those as a family. I've learned so much right alongside the kids about the diverse and wonderful world that our God has created and how little we happen to know about it. Recently, as we were watching one of these shows and listening to David Attenborough describe the incredible creatures of the rainforest of Papua New Guinea, we were introduced to one of the oddest creatures I've ever seen. It's one of these newly discovered birds of paradise that are found only in one place on earth. Like in many bird species, the female has a plain appearance in comparison with the male who bears the burden of attracting a mate through the diligent construction of a sort of bower and through his mesmerizing appearance and through this hypnotic dance that he does in order to attract the attention, if performed skillfully, of a female. If you've never seen it, you need to look it up. You can probably find it on the internet, I'm sure. Uh, But this bird of paradise, he spreads his wings over himself, forming an almost perfectly round black umbrella with only one brightly colored eye peeking out toward the object of his affection perched on a branch above. And he sort of dances back and forth until he successfully wins her over. So teenage guys, now you know how to, you know, win... (laughs) A girl's heart. But I bring that up to say this. Apparently for birds of paradise, appearance matters. It it communicates something. And as much as we might like to say that we don't care about appearance, that we're not so superficial as to worry about things like that, it would seem based on this passage that the same is true in the case of human beings. The way that we look, it communicates something. Today's passage, it's sort of a doozy. On the one hand, most modern-day Christians would just as soon skip over a passage like this. I had to laugh when I picked up one of my commentaries in in preparation this last week. Commentator Richard Hayes, who approaches the text from a, a, a different denominational perspective from you and me, laments, quote, More than any other passage in this letter... 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16 presents severe problems for the interpreter. But he hastens to reassure people who apparently don't worship in a church like this that goes book, uh, paragraph by paragraph. He says this, quote, The preacher who works from the Revised Common Lectionary will never have to deal with this text. As if to say, ha, huh, you're okay. Well, we will deal with it. So that's... One approach, uh, on the other hand, if you grew up in a more fundamentalist background like I did, you know that there's a certain type of person who loves to use a text like this to browbeat and abuse authority. I remember hearing Alistair Begg talk about this sort of dynamic, the tendency to have what he calls a thing 
an obsession that overshadows everything else in the Christian life. Head coverings for women can be one of these topics that can become your thing if you allow it to do so. Uh, I've read about the head covering movement. You can look that up for yourself on the internet. Uh, Sort of an odd thing to have a movement about, I think, but there it is. But whether you're the type of person who is tempted to dismiss a text like this, or you've suffered under a tyrant who tried to use the Bible to break you down and use and abuse you, I hope that for the love of Christ, you'll be willing to turn your attention afresh to this text as as the Word of God, that you would reverently remember that all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for instruction. Even texts that seem like they come from another world. Even texts that have been misused by many. Even texts that are difficult to interpret. Now this is a difficult text to understand and there are a lot of competing interpretations. So I'm going to try my best to give you just a straightforward explanation of what this text is communicating. And you can search the scripture for yourself and see whether these things be so. And I want to encourage you today, uh, because we're kind of going to be in the weeds, to get out a pen and paper and take notes. You can take notes on the back of your bulletin if you'd like, or in a journal, but we're going to move pretty quickly through this. And I'm actually going to give you seven assertions that I believe arise from this text, and then as we have time at the end, hopefully make some high-level applications for men and women in worship. So here's assertion number one from verses two and three. Assertion number one, men and women are distinct and non-interchangeable. Men and women are distinct and non-interchangeable. Paul begins in verse two by praising, excuse me, praising the Corinthians for their adherence to his teaching. He says, I commend you because You remember me in everything, and you maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. There are two reasons why he does this. First and foremost, it marks a major transition in the letter. If you are paying attention, you read through the letter as a whole, you'll notice that every time Paul makes a major topical transition, he goes back to, hey, this is what I've delivered to you, or this is my example, or remember the traditions that I've handed down to you because Paul had spent so much time in the city of Corinth. But the second reason that he says this is uh, because in this specific paragraph, what he's about to say is not a matter of correction. It's a matter of clarification. He's saying, essentially, you carefully keep the traditions I handed down to you, but I have a point of clarification that I need to make. In other words, what's very likely to have happened in in Corinth is that Christians in this city had heard Paul preach about the way that there's no difference in the family of God between male and female, between slave and free, between Jew and Greek, that all all people in Christ have equal share in the inheritance that's ours in Christ Jesus because of the blood of his cross. They've heard Paul say this more than once. We see this in the book of Galatians, that Paul says there's neither male nor female, there's neither slave nor free, etc., And they've taken Paul's teaching and they've sort of carried it to its logical conclusion in the gathered worship setting. And some of the women had had been publicly participating in worship and, and sort of letting their hair down, so to speak, as a way to communicate to everybody, hey, there's no difference between male and female. We're all one in Christ. So the Corinthians reason correctly that the gathering of the local church was supposed to be a dim reflection of that great day 
When every tribe and nation gathers around the throne of the Lamb, you remember this from last week? So that, and so they're leaning into the dignity and the honor of being in Christ, whether male or female. And it's possible that they may have misunderstood what Paul was teaching about this topic. It's possible that they may have understood Paul to mean that men and women in Christ are no longer any different from each other in any respect. And so Paul offers this point of clarification here in chapter 11. And that leads us to this theologically profound statement in verse 3. There's something, Paul says, you still need to understand. Yes, you followed my teaching, and in a sense, you've taken it to its logical conclusion. But there's a reality that you're missing in your celebration of the gospel. Here it is. The head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. Now, a lot of ink has been spilled debating what specifically that means. But don't be distracted by that. Most people argue about this text, not because it's difficult to understand what it means or it's unclear, but because they don't like it. Or because they want to use it to control other people. Just take it for what it says. And if you do that, you'll notice that the distinction between men and women is closely related to the distinction between Christ and God the Father. Now that is profound, Because what Paul is doing here is is he's grounding the behavior and even the appearance of men and women in gathered worship in the mysterious relations of the Holy Trinity. Of, Of course, there's a lot about the Holy Trinity that lies beyond the reaches of our understanding, but fundamental to our understanding of God is that the Father and the Son are distinct from and yet equal to one another. We know this to be the case. Uh, To use the language of later Christians, Jesus is God from God. He is, according to Philippians chapter 2, equal to God. So this is a fundamental truth. But Jesus and the Father, they're equal, they're God, but they're not the same person. They're distinct from one another. They are one in one sense, but distinct in another sense. And here's another thing. They are not interchangeable. What you say about Christ as the second person of the Trinity cannot also be said about God the Father or God the Holy Spirit. They're not just two copies of the same thing. They have unique identities even within the councils of the Trinity. The Father is unbegotten. The Son is begotten. They cannot be switched around. You can't say about the Father what you can say about the Son. They're equal. They're both God. And one of God's attributes is oneness. There's only one God, but they're distinct and non-interchangeable. In his incarnation, it was the Son who submitted to the Father, not the other way around. In becoming the Messiah, Jesus, the Son of God, became flesh and suffered. The Father didn't become flesh. The Father sent the Son. The Son was sent by the Father. They're equal, but they're distinct. You say, that doesn't make sense. That blows my mind. But what did you expect? This is God we're talking about. He's not going to be like you in every, in every way. You're never going to wrap your mind around the creator of the universe. Some things about God are so mind-blowing that our minds just cannot grasp them completely. And so we just have to take by faith what God has revealed about himself. 
But here's why Paul brings it up, because the distinction between men and women is analogous to the distinction between God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. They are equal. They are distinct. They're not interchangeable. One is the head of the other. Just like Christ was sent by the Father, so the woman came from man, as we'll see in verse 8. Just like Christ submitted to the Father, so a wife ought to place herself under the leadership of her husband. Now, you might not like that, and if you want, you can find a whole library full of evangelical authors who will explain this text away, and that might salve your conscience, but it doesn't change the plain meaning of what's there. It doesn't change the Word of God. In fact, I found it interesting that in studying for this sermon and consulting various commentaries and journal articles and things, that uh, conservative uh, interpreters and very liberal conservatives or very liberal commentators seem to agree in this respect that it was pretty clear what Paul was trying to communicate. It was just that these conservative folks were saying, we need to accept what Paul says because he's inspired by the Holy Spirit. And these really liberal people were saying, Paul says this, but I just don't agree and I'm going to throw it out because I don't care about what Paul says. It's these folks in the middle who say, well, I know we're supposed to accept what the Bible says, but it makes me uncomfortable and I'm going to change it around that have this motivation to change what Paul says. So, and I could talk about that for a lot more. We could be here all day, but assertion number one is men and women are distinct and non-interchangeable. Here's assertion number two. The distinction between men and and women should be apparent in gathered worship. The distinction between men and women should be apparent in gathered worship. We find this in verses 4 through 5a. Paul says, you've done a great job adhering to my teachings. You, you, you've listened to the traditions that I've handed down to you, but you're misunderstanding the gospel if you take it to mean that there's no longer any distinction at all between men and women. No, there is a distinction. And in verses 4 and 5, he goes a step further to say that this distinction ought to be apparent in public worship. Now, in Corinth, this looked like something very specific. Men should worship with their heads uncovered. Women should have a covering, a a veil, a headscarf of some kind over their head in gathered worship. Now, again, I I want you to see this for yourself. So let's just consider the details. It's possible that Paul is restricting this instruction to those who are exercising public ministry. He says, any woman who prays or prophesies. And so it's possible that he's just talking about people who are ministering publicly. Leaving aside the question of what specifically he means by prophecy, we'll come back to that in the coming weeks. This would seem to be a kind of public ministry, analogous perhaps to a woman singing with the band or reading scripture from the stage. At the very least, he's talking about what people wear in the weekly gathering as the context makes very clear. So he's not talking about what people wear when they're in their own house. He's talking about the gathering of God's people. Now, some people would say that Paul is talking about women having long hair or having a feminine hairstyle. And they say this because in verse 15, uh, Paul says her hair is given to her for a covering. But You need to understand, because I'm just saying, you'll hear these types of interpretations, or if you haven't already, 
But just understand that in verse 15, it's a different word for covering. It's a different Greek word. I think Paul's making a different point. And if we say that the head covering for women is just having long hair or a feminine hairstyle, then that takes verse 6 and makes it mean absolutely nothing. It, it makes it into an absurdity. Okay, so no, he's not talking about just long hair. Uh, he's talking about a woman there in Corinth who is praying or prophesying either as a, a, a sort of a leader, somebody that's in the band or somebody who's ministering from the, the stage or in front of everyone or just someone who's there in gathered worship. And that woman needs to wear a head covering and the men need to not have a head covering. In Corinth, that was what he was trying to get them to do. It's very, very plain, very simple. Now, the thornier question, of course, is how to apply this command in the United States today, particularly if you are a woman. If you're a man, uh, I, it's easy for me to get up here and say, men, remove your hats when we be, as we begin worship. And everybody would say, okay, that's pretty normal, all right? So really, the, the sticking point in this text is for those of you who are women, because uh, it's not typical for uh, folks in, in 21st century America to come to worship and for women to be wearing head coverings. It's not, um, it's not unheard of, but it's not normal. So this is the thornier question. And on the question of women wearing a head covering in worship, if you research this for yourself, I'm just going to give you a fair warning. Whether you're looking at published books and scholarly articles or you're just finding some guy's opinion on social media, you are going to see the full gamut. You will be bombarded with a bewildering array of conflicting information about the background and the history and the cultural entailments of the city of Corinth and the worship of Christians. And you need to know that all of that evidence that's marshaled in defense of this or that position is, quite frankly, rather inconclusive. Like you can interpret it in different ways or it conflicts with this other evidence that I'm conveniently leaving out because I'm trying to make my point, uh, the, the historical evidence is not conclusive on what, what was the impact and the meaning of this head covering in the city of Corinth. Historian Everett Ferguson sums it up nicely in his book, Backgrounds of Early Christianity. He says, quote, In which cultures in the first century women wore veils in public? In what numbers? And with what significance are not perfectly clear now. Jewish sources rather uniformly call for women to be veiled in public, but Greek and Roman sources are mixed in their evidence. In other words, we just don't know a lot conclusively about the cultural context into which Paul utter these, utters these commands. Now, you, will, you can go. If you go on the internet, you'll find some people, they're, they're going to confidently say, I know what was going on. I know exactly what was happening in Corinth. They're not telling the truth. They don't know that. Uh, it's not known. And so this is one of the reasons why most Christians in most times and places have just taken this text at face value. They haven't relegated it to the cultural situation in Corinth because we don't know about the cultural situation in Corinth. What we know is just what the text says. And so most Christians throughout the history of Christianity have just taken it at face value. Ancient interpreters who spoke Greek as their first language, okay, so people unlike you and I, they spoke the same language as the New Testament, they have uniformly said, no, women need to wear a head covering in gathered worship. Men like John Chrysostom or 
Clement of Alexandria explained to their churches that this passage just means what it seems to mean. Men should come to worship with their heads uncovered. Women should come to worship with their head covered. Others, like Tertullian of Carthage or Augustine of Hippo, agreed. In Western countries, even in the United States, this was the predominant practice among Christian women until at least the 20th century, and it continues to be the approach of many, many, many women throughout the world who worship Christ to this day. It might seem strange to us, but the fact is that most Christian women in the world, especially if you count the ones who have already gone to heaven, have operated under the assumption that this passage is directing women to have a head covering of some kind in the worship service. Now, I bring all that up to say this. A direct application of this text, at the very least, merits your serious consideration. But even if you reach the conclusion that to wear a head covering doesn't make sense, given the cultural differences between Corinth in the first century and Texas in the 21st, I would suggest that you consider what that head covering means. What was it that Paul was concerned about in the city of Corinth? And I think he was focused on two concerns, two things that he wants us to be concerned about even to this day. Uh, First of all, he's concerned about modesty. Paul was concerned about modesty. As Paul says in verse 15, a woman's hair is her glory. It's one of her most beautiful features. And in most cultures in the world, it's considered sexually enticing. That's just a fact. I mean, just read Song of Solomon and and read, find out what it is that this young man is so attracted to in his young bride. And he says, well, her hair (laughs) is one of those things. So it's almost certainly the case that if a woman in in the Corinthian church were ministering publicly, that is, she's in front of everyone and everyone's looking at her, and she just sort of lets her hair down, literally, that would have been a distraction to the people living in the city Of Corinth, because it would have invited attention toward her physical appearance and distracted from the very things she was saying about the Lord Jesus Christ. It would be like today if a woman got up to read scripture and she's wearing, you know, a miniskirt or something like that. That would be distracting, right? That would be, uh, you don't want people leering at your body, you want them worshiping Christ. And you can bring out all the tropes about how men are perverts and how. You know, they, should, they shouldn't be looking if they can't handle it and how uh, the body doesn't need to always be sexual all the time. And even if all that were completely true and the whole story, it would still be the case that you shouldn't dress like that if you're in front of everybody because it would be distracting from what we're trying to do. It's just common sense, okay? I'm not trying to throw red meat out there. I'm just trying to state it, say it like it is. So Paul is concerned about modesty. And by the way, he's not saying you should be ashamed of your body. He's saying you should honor your body. That's a whole other teaching, okay? He's concerned about modesty. uh, But he's also concerned about communicating to the world, to the culture around us, the proper order of things. What you say, what you do, and yes, what you wear communicates something about your values. To say otherwise, it's just special pleading. You know this is true. 
And at least in Corinth, when a woman was worshiping with her head covered and the man had his head uncovered, here's what that communicated. It communicated something to the world that they celebrated God's distinction between men and women and that the women joyfully submitted to that distinction. They celebrated it. Whether or not you think that a woman should have her head covered in worship, that's one question. But I think if you're honest with yourself, there's a much deeper question that you need to ask yourself, and that's this question. Do I accept, do I welcome, do I celebrate the distinction that God has put in place in creation between men and women? Now, when we get our emotions up about this issue of head covering, sometimes that deeper question is really what's at stake. And I would just urge you to say, regardless of what you conclude about head coverings, ask yourself this, do I receive, do I celebrate, do I welcome what God has made in the distinction between men and women? Am I glad for what God has done? Do I receive that? Now, for the sake of time, we have to keep moving to assertion number three. So first, men and women are distinct and non-interchangeable. Second, that distinction ought to be apparent in gathered worship. Number three, to ignore the distinction between men and women is shameful. It's shameful. I'm just following along in the text. This is from verses 5b through 6. We see Paul argue this here in these verses. He says, this is the same thing as if your head were shaved. Now again, there are, there's a lot of ink spilled about what did it mean in Corinth that when a woman had a shaved head, what did that signify? Was that something having to do with prostitution or with the idol temple? Uh, was that, what, did that, what did that entail? The point is this. We don't know specifically, but the point is this. It, was, it would have been shameful to them. They wouldn't have wanted to walk out, uh, out of the house with a, a shaved head because that was the, their hair was their glory. And so what Paul is saying is, it, just like it's shameful for you to walk out of your house in, in Corinth with your head shaved, it, it's shameful for you to ignore this instruction about gathered worship and head covering. So he's saying if you resist showing that you are a modest woman who celebrates the distinction between men and women, then you're bringing shame on your own head. That is, you're shaming yourself, and you're also shaming your husband or Christ, depending on who he said in verse 3, your head is. Okay? So what, what that means is this. The gospel brings honor, right? The gospel restores our dignity, right? It reminds us that we're each created in the image of God. And so when we gather and celebrate the gospel of Jesus Christ, we ought to celebrate and and rejoice in that dignity and honor one another. But Paul says, if you try to ignore the distinction between men and women in gathered worship, you're doing the opposite of what the gospel is designed to do. Instead of bringing honor, you're bringing dishonor. You say, well, you know, my husband, he deserves it. He doesn't deserve to be honored. But listen, just remember, you're in a one flesh relationship. So when you dishonor him, you're dishonoring yourself. And again, regardless of what you conclude about a head covering or not a head covering, it's that distinction, are we celebrating it or not? Because if we ignore it, that brings shame according to the word of God. That's assertion number three. 
number one, there is a distinction between men and women. They're not interchangeable. Number two, that distinction ought to be on display when the church gathers. Number three, to ignore that distinction brings shame upon oneself, one's spouse, and one's Savior. Here's assertion number four from verses 7 through 10. The distinction uh, between men and women is part of God's original design. It's part of God's original design. Uh, Why shouldn't a man cover his head in worship? Well, there's something about that, at least in the city of Corinth, that communicated in contradiction to this idea in verse 7 that he's the image and glory of God. This teaching comes from the very first chapter of the Bible in which we learn that human beings are created in the image and likeness of God. That is, uh, the emphasis in that chapter is that human beings, both male and female, are the, the crown, the glory, the pinnacle of God's creation, that he's made us in his image. And so when we are living in the world, when we're doing what God's designed us to do, part of what's happening is we're displaying the glory of God. But he goes further and he says, okay, but who is the glory? If, if human beings are the pinnacle of God's creation, who is the glory of humankind? Is it men? No, it's women. <laughs> and we see that in Genesis chapter 2, the passage that Bill read earlier in the service. It's not the men, it's the women. Which gender displays the glory of mankind? The woman. Uh, God uh, creates the world, Genesis chapter 2. He says it's good time and time and time again. And there's one thing that he says that's not good. What is it? It's not good that the man should be alone. And so God tells us that he forms the woman out of the rib of the man. God creates the woman from man as a suitable helper for him. Now, don't misunderstand. He's not saying that the man is important and the woman is unimportant or in any way less than. He's saying, and in fact, God uses that same language of suitable helper. Uh, He uses that same language for himself. In other words, the woman's not coming alongside the man as like the assistant to the manager or something like that. Uh, she's coming alongside the man to, in the sense of coming to the aid of, just like God comes to our aid, okay? Uh, so it's not less than, it's that they're complementing one another. They have a distinct role in the marriage relationship, in that marriage covenant. And so what Paul is saying is that human beings are the pinnacle of God's creation, but the pinnacle of the creation of mankind is in fact the woman, So we really can't understand what Paul is communicating here unless we broaden our perspective out to the entire Bible and we understand the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, think all the way back to the beginning. And I know we go back here all the time, but this really does, it's the foundation, guys, of everything we understand about the gospel of Jesus Christ. What happened in the beginning? God created human beings and he said, I want you to he said to the man, I want you to oversee. I want you to subdue the earth. I want you to, to have dominion over the earth. I want you to be fruitful and multiply. So here's Adam. He's supposed to honor his wife. He's supposed to guide his wife and tell her what God has said. He's supposed to, together with her, subdue all of creation. And then in Genesis chapter 3, what happens? The whole order gets flipped on its head, doesn't it? Instead of the man guiding his wife and then together ruling over the beasts, we have a snake deceiving Eve, and then she convinces him to go along even though he knows better. 
So what happens in the fall, and this is what Satan is always going to try to do, is the order that God has created in the world, the order that brings him most glory, the order that displays to the angels that God is a wonderful, amazing, incredible God. The fall, in the fall, because of sin, we flip God's order on its head. And what happens is this. When Christ comes, when the Holy Spirit comes, he takes us and he begins to change our heart. And that order that exists even in our hearts, that, that disorderedness, he begins to write it. And so our relationships begin to go back to the way that God designed them to be. So uh, that's the world in, in, in which we live. And, and, and the Holy Spirit comes in and he uh, rescues us from that and begins to apply the gospel of Jesus Christ and he restores us to that designed order. See, it doesn't look like when we're restored to God, it doesn't look like the genders are now totally the same and they're t- completely interchangeable. What it looks like is that we're restored to our original design. See, the world is going to tell you that any distinction between men and women is oppressive. And quite frankly, historically, that has been the case very often and continues to be down to this very day. But we need to find a solution in the Word of God instead of going to the world, which has messed it up, for the solution. So uh, that, that idea of any difference is the man asserting himself and, and dominating over women, they're going to tell you that to heal, you must violently, violently take it back and destroy the distinctions between the genders. But the difference between men and women is not a result of tens of thousands of years of human evolution where men have learned to kind of control their wives. No, it's a result of the design of God. And when God brings the gospel and the Holy Spirit comes and begins to change us, he restores those designs. And Paul says essentially that the angels themselves, the heavenly hosts who behold the face of God and love to see his grace and his mercy and his salvation and his judgment unfolding in creation, they are eagerly interested in seeing this restoration take place. And the Bible tells us, you know, we're gathered here in the presence of God and the angels are like looking at what's going on. And Peter tells us they're interested. They're longing to look and to see what the gospel's doing in the lives of human beings because we're the ones who are created in the image of God. And they want to see that that created order is restored. So Paul says, for the sake of the angels, for the sake of those who love to see God's order restored and are present at our worship gathering, we must observe and celebrate and enjoy and lean into these distinctions between men and women in the church and in the home. See, friend, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, We are so glad you're here. And I know that a text like this, a sermon like this, might feel a little out of left field to you. But understand, what God desires in your life is for you to be restored to the very purpose for which you were created. The only way that that's going to happen is in Jesus Christ. And by the way, if you're thinking that the world out there has a, a better way that's just going to take you further and further down the wrong path. No, what the, what the Bible tells us is true. And, and all these believers here gathered with us, they can tell you by, by their own testimony that when the Holy Spirit begins to take this book and apply the truths of this book to our hearts so that we see it's not by my righteousness, it's not my, by my fixing up myself, it's only by the righteousness of Christ that I can come and be in his presence. When we embrace that, when we embrace Christ, 
it's, it's almost immediate. It's immediate. The, the, the Holy Spirit begins to change who we are. And all of those relationships and up, up, upside-down values uh, begin to be righted again. In Christ, as a believer in Jesus, you can begin to see the very purpose of your existence restored by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I have to keep going. Assertion number one, men and women are distinct and not interchangeable. Number two, that distinction ought to be apparent in gathered worship. Number three, to ignore it is shameful. Number four, it's part of God's good creational design. Here's assertion number five. The distinction between men and women does not mean one is better than the other. It does not mean one is better than the other. Look at verses 11 through 12. In the Lord, Paul says, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman, for as woman was made from man, that's Genesis 2, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. So in other words, he's saying men and women are equal in terms of their interdependency on one another. We all know this. It's implied earlier in the text, but he comes out and says it here in this text, in these verses. Not only that, uh, but we're all equal in our need of God. And by the way, even the Messiah was born of woman. So both men and, and women derive their life and their identity from God himself. So there's a distinction between men and women, but there's also an equality before God. In other words, if you're a man and you read a passage like this and you come to the conclusion, well, women, they don't understand, they're inferior to me. Uh, men are better. I'm so glad I'm a man instead of a woman, you know, because men are better than women. Uh, not only is that sort of immature, but what you're doing if you reach that conclusion is you're perpetuating the kind of upside downness that the fall that Satan created. You see, what the Bible makes clear is that both men and women are created in God's image and likeness. Yes, there are distinctions. Yes, it's true. We're not interchangeable, but we are the same in terms of our status in the family of God, in terms of our need for one another, in terms of our dependence on the divine uh, work in our lives. Men and women are distinct. They're non-interchangeable. That distinction should be an evidence of the worship gathering. It's shameful to ignore it. It's built into God's original design. It does not imply that one is better than the other. Here's assertion number six, moving quickly from verses 13 through 15. Here's number six. The distinction between men and women is self-evident. It's self-evident. Paul says, judge for yourselves. That doesn't mean you do whatever you want to do. And what he's saying is this. He's saying, you look at the obvious evidence that's in front of you. You make an assessment, an honest assessment for yourself. Uh, and what he's saying is that the way that men and women naturally display different appearances from one another, particularly in the way that they style their hair, uh, that's the one example he cites, uh, supports what he's saying about head coverings. Now, we have to recognize that part of the reason we may not see things the way that Paul does, part of the reason it may not be as obvious to you as it was to him and to his Corinthian audience, is because our culture, the world in which we live, has worked so hard to blur the lines. It's worked so hard to destroy the cultural distinctions between the genders. And you have to ask yourself why that is. Now, a lot of this is possible, 
because we enjoy living in a free society under the law, and we have law and order, so you don't have to, uh, if you're a man, you don't have to, like, fight people with swords all the time in order to protect your family. And so there's some opportunities for us to, to just enjoy the freedom and the blessing of living in the time and in the place that we live. But that's not the whole explanation. There's something more than that. There's a push today to blur the lines, and I'm not exaggerating when, exaggerating when I say that it is demonic. It's satanic. It's exactly, here's why, it's exactly the same thing that Satan did in Genesis chapter 3. This is straight out of the same playbook. What he does is he takes God's order and he flips it on its head. And that's what he's doing in our culture today. And yet if we clear away the noise and we're willing to be honest and we step back and we look at the obvious realities of life as men and women in God's world, we're led to the unavoidable conclusion that the distinction between men and women is baked in to the very nature of things, and that this is not bad, it's good. It's part of God's good design. And in case you're tempted to think that what Paul is saying is strange, not normal, over the top, he concludes in verse 16 with our seventh assertion. Here it is. The distinction between men and women is observed by all Christians everywhere. It's observed by all Christians everywhere. He says, if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. That is, Christians don't argue over this. They don't have a big debate over it. They just, it's common knowledge. We don't need to be contentious about it because Christians everywhere observe the distinction between men and women. Now, it's true that in our society, in which the forces of politics and culture are pouring enormous amounts of energy toward bending the boundaries of gender and sexuality, what Paul teaches in this chapter may seem otherworldly to us. But we shouldn't be surprised if we as believers live against the grain of the world in which we live. That should not be shocking to us because the Bible has already told us that that was going to happen. We follow a Savior who was led to a cross and nailed to a cross of wood. That's who we worship. And so we should not be surprised if the culture in which we live rejects our values. So instead of worrying about what your coworkers or your classmates think, consider the commitments of the godly. I'm not the only person who has a relationship with God. What have faithful Christians down through the ages committed themselves to? What have they practiced down through the ages? Well, here's what they've practiced. Men and women are not interchangeable. They're distinct. They've practiced that distinction ought to be apparent when we gather for worship. They've said to ignore the distinction between men and women is shameful. The distinction is baked into God's original design for men and women that, that it doesn't mean that one gender is superior to the other, that it's self-evident if we're willing to be honest and question the spirit of the age, that's what godly people down through the ages have always asserted. And so if any of you are inclined to be contentious, or if I'm inclined to be contentious, then all the other churches have got all the other godly people. They're not debating about it. They're just accepting what the word of God has to say. This is what godly people observe. Now, because of the constraints of time, we've not addressed 
every detail or point of contention in this passage. And I know there are a bunch of questions that many of you have. Some of you have already brought up to me, you know, I've read this interpretation, or I've heard this person speak about this. And uh, man, I could talk about it for a long time.